Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful people. Set us on fire with your love. Where we are weak, make us strong. Where we are timid, make us bold. Where we are confused, make us lucid and clear. And where we are dour, Lord, make us joyful. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. First, a shout out to Kenny. Boy, did he nail those names or what? <laughs> so do you, uh, do you like name droppers? You know, people who uh, boost their own image by telling you all the famous people they know? Not really attractive. Well, Paul is a great name dropper. Now, usually when people do series of sermons on Colossians, they stop at verse 6 and they just lop off the end of chapter 4. And that's to miss some really good stuff. So we didn't lop it off and Kenny got the names right and you don't even recognize most of those names. But that's the difference. Paul's a great name dropper, but with a big difference. The people Paul mentions couldn't possibly add to his prestige. In fact, if Paul had never mentioned most of them, they would have simply have faded into the annals of history long forgotten. He doesn't really characterize them at all, or at least not if you stop with just what's there in Colossians 4 in this little letter. You've, you've got to go poking around in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament You've got to read between the lines to fill out the portrait to get a a little more of a glimpse. Now, a few of the names are familiar, but most of them are just there because Paul loves them and values them as his brothers and sisters. He uses names like fellow servants, faithful beloved, fellow prisoners. They're all a comfort to him at some level. Now, when you look at that list... One interesting question is, are they only loving and lovable? I mean, if you were to list at the end of your life all the people you wanted to thank, you wanted others to remember, you'd probably trot out the people who had, had been good to you, the people who had done nice things for you, the people who had done great things. You, 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 wouldn't, um, you wouldn't trot out the people who betrayed you who abandoned you, who forgot you. But Paul does. They're not only the lovely and the lovable, which I guess shouldn't surprise us because he's talking about a church. Timothy. Now, we know Timothy's name. We think, good dude. Faithful servant. But Timothy was timid. He needed considerable bracing up at various points in his life. He worried overly much about his stomach. Paul had to take time and say, you know, take a little wine, calm down. Had to reassure him that just because he was young, he was up to the task. Well, Timothy comes in for mention. 
Paul acknowledges a whole team of people. As I would like to on this, my last Sunday with you all. Some names I haven't got straight yet. But I look around the room and I see people I've come to know just a bit. And I thank God for you. And uh, the names that I already knew, I've only come to treasure even more. So when I say thank you to just a few individuals, consider yourselves all thanked because all of you together are the Church of the Apostles. Um, I've known Jan longer than anybody here, and she's one of my dearest friends and colleagues in ministry. It was a great joy and privilege to be able to walk her on this pathway to to ordination. And I don't need to tell you anything about her because you treasure her for who she is and what she does. You don't even know all that she does. But that's what deacons are and do. Um, I didn't get anything done without Jane at my side these eight weeks. Um, if you want to draw a portrait of faithful, quiet, gracious servant, her name is Jane. And I will be forever grateful for her steady encouragement. Uh, I don't think I could have come up with anything to ask her to do that she wouldn't have gladly done. Um, Now, another guy I I, I really treasure and wish I'd had more time with, but I'll get to spend next week with him for a few days at the Ordinance Retreat, is is Walter. And, um, you know, some of you are only just getting to know Walter and to treasure Walter, but just wait. Just wait. Um, Nancy and I got to spend a lot of time with Brian and Tamara uh, in the eight weeks we were here. Uh, That was a part of what I was here, was just to hang out with them, care for them, pray with them, love them. Uh, and help them to feel unencumbered so that they could come back full steam in a couple of weeks. That's what church is. That's what Christian faith is all about. Christianity is not a set of doctrinal statements. Now, don't get me wrong. I fancy myself a theologian. Doctrine is hugely important to me. I'm an idea guy. Um, I'm the theological advisor to the bishop, so I get tapped by him and by priests in the diocese to answer hard questions, to do research. That's how I'm wired. But that's not the essence of what Christianity is about. Now, Paul attends to doctrine. He, he says some things in middle chapters in Colossians and all over his letters about, about what's good theology, what's bad theology. He helps get the church back on track when it goes off. But... That's not what we are about primarily. Christianity is not primarily about a culture. It's, it's not just about the, the style of our worship, the, the, the kinds of hymns we sing, the instruments we play. Those are all important and good, and they express our personality as a congregation. Christianity is not a story, though we love the story, the truest story of all stories. Christianity at root is about God's kingdom. It's about Christ and his people. It's about the people. Which means this passage at the end of Colossians is not a throwaway. 
And it's a mistake to lop it off and leave it out of the sermon series. Because you know this, Christianity is not just a bunch of abstract ideas, but it's about people like us. Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh, became one of us. The God of the gospel is, if nothing else, a God of love, love expressed in relationships. So where does Paul get this kind of love that he pours out in the last verses of Colossians? And how does he become this kind of gracious name dropper? How does that kind of team come into being? Well, when men and women become servants of Jesus Christ, who is the great forgiver of us all. That's what binds us together. Do you think Jeff and I are bound together for all eternity just because we're cool guys? (laughs) Or because we always get it right? (laughs) Yeah, I am. One of my teachers said it this way. We are all God's thievish runaways. We have all robbed him and deserted him. And nonetheless, we are still the beloved. Because we've been forgiven and restored. And we can become credible witnesses to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, only by forgiving one another and becoming name droppers in the manner of Paul. Let's take a look at the team. Take a look at some of these people that, whose names Paul drops. I mean, Paul, Paul is, a, is a man of huge talent and learning. But he knows better than anybody that he's not a one-man show. I just stopped there for a second. We have a hard time taking that on board as American Christians because we are plagued all around us by celebrity church. We put people up on pedestals and then we lament when they crash and burn. I mean, scarcely a week goes by when some name, big name preacher isn't caught up in scandal or outrage or failure of some kind or another. This summer, it's been all over the place. You can just trot out the names. I mean, I'll talk about one of them in just a little bit for just a moment. But we've all been there. I'll say something a little controversial on on this turf. But there, there are a lot of you in this room who were blessed, and I mean authentically blessed by the ministry of one man, Terry Fulham. God be praised. But Terry Fulham would be the first to remind you, it's not about me. You're not here merely because you knew Terry Fulham. You're here because of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he tirelessly proclaimed. And every time we make of any preacher or pastor or leader a hero, a celebrity, 
we're in deep spiritual danger. So Paul talks about Tychicus. He calls him our dear brother, faithful servant, fellow slave in the Lord. Servants are hired hands. Slaves are owned. Paul is unembarrassed to praise someone for that, for being a slave of Jesus. Because Christ owns us. We work for him. Tychicus was a Gentile from Asia Minor. He traveled with Paul at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He was obviously trustworthy. Paul sent him with uh, the letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, and probably the letter to Philemon. He may have been sent to relieve Titus on the island of Crete. As Paul faced the end of his life, he sent Tychicus back to Ephesus again, took over Timothy's pastoral duties so that Timothy could leave to join Paul. His last words to Timothy, bring your cloak, bring me a cloak and bring my books. I love that. Then there's Onesimus, who accompanied Tychicus on that trip. Onesimus was a runaway slave and a thief whom Paul led to Christ during his house arrest in Rome. He calls him my child, the one I fathered here in prison. That's the hint about his spiritual nurture. Paul's now sending him back to his master. Wow. And he sends him with private correspondence for Philemon, the owner. Doesn't mention that here. It's in a public letter to the church. Um, Paul calls him Mr. Useful, who was once, now he speaks to Onesimus, his master, he says, he was once useless to you. Now he calls him dear and faithful brother. There's Mark, Barnabas's nephew. It's really a shock to see him in this list, to see Paul do a shout out to this young man. But it's encouraging to see him on Paul's team because he had deserted Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Read Acts 13. He was a bitter disappointment to Paul. Paul wanted nothing more to do with him. He ran off, he went home to mom. But Barnabas insisted that he get a second chance on the second missionary journey, but then Paul and Barnabas split. Now, 12 years later, Paul says, welcome him without reservation. I wonder how many of us have stories like that, welcoming back someone who had done us wrong. A great story of reconciliation. Jesus' justice is one of three Jews mentioned alongside all these Gentiles. Paul says simply, he's a fellow worker for the kingdom of God, an encouragement to me. And then there's Luke. We think we know Luke. Luke was probably a slave. Because if you were a doctor, you were likely a slave because no non-slave would muck around with this filthy practice of being a doctor. A Gentile, the only Gentile author in the New Testament, responsible for a quarter of the New Testament. He accompanies Paul on some of his missionary journeys, including a shipwreck on the way to Rome. I love those passages, by the way, where Paul just trots out like 25 bad things that happened to him and then says, praise God. Shipwrecks, beatings, abandonment. Luke was along for that ride. 
He was the only worker with Paul near the end of his second imprisonment as he faced execution. And then Paul mentions this guy named Demas. I was thinking a lot about Demas the last couple of weeks. Paul says nothing nice about him, nothing to commend him. Paul calls him a fellow worker in Philemon, verse 24. But in 2 Timothy 4, you find out the latest truth about Demas, the sad report. Paul says to Timothy, he deserted me. He's gone to the Thessalonians. And then this this devastating final assessment of Demas. He's in love with this present world. Celebrity church. He's in love with this present world. He's gone. Kind of like Joshua Harris, whose name some of you know. The guy behind the whole purity movement. The guy who kissed dating goodbye. The guy who, as a young, young pastor, a superstar, a stud, made a huge mark on American evangelical Christianity, and then just a few weeks ago announced in quick succession that he was divorcing his wife and leaving the faith and moving on from Christianity. I don't know that we've heard the last chapter of Joshua Harris's life, but, but he's Demas. Demas is a warning to all of us of the possibility of defection. Every team knows that there are members who disappoint us. Mark encourages us with the hope of restoration for those who have failed, like Peter. Then Paul does a shout out to this family in Laodicea. A community of the Holy Spirit, a group of friends who about whom we know only that they cared for one another, were filled with affection for one another. You could say the family in Fairfield County. That's that's one thing that has, has astonished me, is here's a church with people from all over the county, and yet you've been brought together by the Holy Spirit to love and care for one another. You know, there, there are a lot of things about this church that make no sense. <laughs> but that's how God works. The surprises of grace. We sang it this morning. The power of mercy. Mercy. Without mercy... You're not here. I'm not here. And even in a a, a short snapshot of your life together, just these eight weeks, Nancy and I have been with you this summer, we've been witness to acts of compassion and caring, mourning together, grieving together, reaching out and loving one another with, with simple, quiet acts, praying for one another, Yeah, I'd love to know more about that family in Laodicea, but 
I don't really need to know a lot about them because I've seen a church just like them. Here's what we know about the kind of church that Paul is giving thanks to God for. It's, it's, a, it's a team and a church that is multiracial and ethnically diverse. Three fellow Jews, the rest are Gentiles. You, you can't imagine how radical a racial divide that was in the first century. But it was erased in and through Jesus. People from the opposing ends of the professional spectrum. And Paul says, have this letter read to the whole congregation. There are people who can't even read in this group. The team is the family of God. An overzealous Jew, a converted slave, and Paul calls them beloved brothers. A community of the Holy Spirit, people who know each other and are known by one another, brothers and sisters, the family of God. And each of us has been adopted into that family. And this, this really reminded me of you all. The team that Paul's a part of that he gives thanks for here at the end of Colossians is a team that's focused on prayer and the word. You don't have to be big to do that. You can do that when you gather in an auditorium like this. You can do that in a synagogue for sure. You can do that in your homes and you do. We said at the outset of this series that the aim Paul has is to help every member stand mature in Christ. That's the main thing. Everybody grown up and enjoying the fullness of God. And one of the chief ways that comes to expression is in being a people of prayer. This is a fellowship of prayer we see laid out at the end of Colossians. And they're doing what the first verses of chapter 4 say they should do. They devote themselves. They continue steadfastly in prayer. They're watchful in prayer. In fact, when they pray, they're looking already in anticipation for what God is going to do to answer those prayers. And they're thankful above all. How many times has Paul trotted out that word to describe them? Paul prayed for this at the beginning. He said, I ask God to fill you with the knowledge of what he wants in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. At the beginning of the letter, Paul says, I'm giving thanks for you, and I'm praying for you that you'll all grow up in Jesus. And now at the end of the letter, he turns it around and said, would you pray for me? Pray that God will open a door for me to bring the word of God, the gospel, the saving good news of Jesus to more people. The the whole letter is bookended in prayer. Paul saves the best for last. Epaphras, the planter. Epaphras was Thad Barnum in Colossae, the pastor, the team leader. You met him at the beginning. Paul does a shout out to him at the very outset of the letter. He was the one who had been converted and discipled during Paul's extended stay in Ephesus, no doubt. And now he had returned to his own hometown and planted a church there, as well as in neighboring Laodicea and Herapolis. 
Paul says, you heard about this before in the word of truth, the gospel which has arrived on your doorstep, producing fruit and growing among you and now in all the world. That got started in these people's lives because of Epaphras. Now, he's not a superstar. This is superstar-less Christianity that Paul is describing here. Because when problems arose, Epaphras was in over his head. He had to go to Paul to figure out how to deal with false teachers. But go he did. Paul says God can always use a pastor like Epaphras. This is something I'm going to say to the people in Raleigh as they get ready over the next year while I'm interim there and they're looking for a new pastor. I'm going to say, you know, you need a pastor like Epaphras. What does Paul say about him at the end? He's always wrestling in prayer for you. Epaphras is a man of prayer. Struggling in prayer on your behalf. Praying you'll stand firm and mature and have your mind... Mind's fully settled on everything God wants you to do. That word wrestling that Paul uses is the same word he used to describe his own ministry. We didn't know exactly what it entailed back at the end of chapter 1. Now we know it. By the time we get to chapter 4, we know, oh, that's what he meant. He said, I'm struggling with all the energy God gives me on your behalf. Paul was talking about his prayer life. Prayer is hard work. So why does Paul use this funny image, this athletic metaphor to describe a life of prayerful leadership? I don't know if any of you have wrestled. A big part of wrestling, I kid you not, a big part of wrestling is just holding on. In a flash, a little bit of an opening, and you can pin a guy. But mostly wrestling is holding on. Is Epaphras in a different league from all of us? Are any of these people at the end of chapter 4 superstars? No. They're simply holding on. Epaphras was never going to give up. Day after day, holding on in his prayers. I think that's a good image to take into the fall. Hold on. So I'll say one more time what Paul said to the people of Colossae. Every time I remember you in my prayers, I thank God for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.